now on Radio Italia Uno, it's time to change the world with Matt McQuinley. The energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. We focus on changing the world for the better by taking personal responsibility, canceling cancel culture, discussing and listening to each other on topics like leadership, cultural trends, business, history, and more. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Right now on Radio Italia Uno, 87.6 FM. Hi, and welcome to Change the World with Matt McQuinley. Last week, we finished our eight-part series on leadership with NeuroChange Master and Performance Coach Gwen Meyer. I urge you to listen to it on our podcast if you missed it. The eighth session is a recap. If you listen to that one, you can get an idea of what happened in each episode, and you can go from there. Or you could just listen to them in order. Catch them on Anchor, Spotify, or you could check our Facebook page, which is Change the World with Matt McQuinley. Today we are starting a three-part series on policing and its interactions with the community. We have in our studio today Derek McManus, who was a sniper, special ops diver, counter-terrorist operative with the Elite Star Group, Special Tasks and Rescue Force. During a high-risk arrest, he was shot 14 times in five seconds by a high-powered rifle, and because of the situation, could not be reached to be given medical aid for over three hours. After his recovery, full recovery, in two and a half years, he returned to the police and continued in law enforcement for another 24 years until his retirement in 2018, completing a 42-year career in law enforcement. He now runs a public speaking training business, called the Center for Human Durability. You can look into utilizing his services for your organization on his website, DerekMcManus.com, D-E-R-R-I-C-K-M-C-M-A-N-U-S.com. We also have on the line in Chicago, Illinois, Marshall McQuinley. Full disclosure, my father, who uh, was a police sergeant in Chicagoland for 26 years, also was in the domestic violence unit for two and a half years, the gang task force for two and a half years, community policing for three years, patrol for 10 years, the juvenile section for four years, and a field training officer for over six years. I wanted to do this series because of the crazy narrative that's out there that law enforcement officers wake up every morning whistling a happy tune while putting on their jackboots to go out and stomp on people's civil rights. When the actual fact is, out of 10.1 million arrests in the United States last year, with 800,000 sworn law enforcement officers and untold tens, if not hundreds of millions of interactions with police, there were 1,004 deaths involving police. And of those, 24 deaths were in police custody of an unarmed suspect. Now, of course, 24 is too high. 1,004 obviously is too high. One is too many for an unarmed suspect. But consider the numbers. Out of 800,000 cops, that means if 99.9% are good, that means there are still 800 quote-unquote bad cops in the United States. The numbers are even better in Australia. This is an area where, of course, we can have zero tolerance. But the public, in my opinion, needs to understand that we are all citizens and we're all in this together. The police are on the front line of this effort to provide safety and security for us and our families. And as it's been said, it is a very thin 
blue line. A recent Gallup poll has found that 48% of Americans view police positively. In Australia, the Australian Bureau of Statistics has just released that the favorable view of policing has dropped from 82% down to 56% just in the last two years. The reality actually is, in my opinion, as a layman, so as I have no formal education or training in this subject, I can speak freely, is that these guys and gals, for the most part, got a badge on their ninth birthday and a gun and then decided they wanted to catch the bad guys and save widows and orphans. That's really the reality. Out of 800,000 cops, if 1% is bad, if 99% are good, and 1% is bad, that's 8,000 bad cops. If 0.1% are bad, that's 800 bad cops. Think about that. Think about the standard that we're holding these people to. Not saying we shouldn't do it, but I think we need to recognize it's just like anything else. We need to focus on trying to be perfect, but realize that, that things are going to go wrong at times. And that the vast majority of law enforcement officers are focused on making the world a better place. So I'd like to turn this over to our guests because they have, they're eminently more qualified to discuss this than me. I'd like to start with Sergeant McQuinley merely because uh, of his background in community policing. Can you talk a little bit about the outreach and what you think can be done to help people understand what's really going on and what the real motivations of the police departments are? One of the things that uh, we did when we were... Uh, experimenting with the uh, concept of community policing was we began a citizens police academy and it was a uh, 10 to 12 week course that was adjusted over the years between 10 and 12 weeks and once a week and we would bring people in and explain to them who we were why we were who we were and how we go about doing what we do and why we do it in such a manner invariably the uh, classes the attendees were uh, people that had uh, little or if any experience with police in the in the past uh, but were interested in the process and we found that uh, we opened a few eyes a lot of questions and one of the the fun things that we did was uh, during this class we had a participation uh, a piece of participation where the students became the police officers and the instructors became the citizens or victims and more often the offender. And the new police officer, class person, was to act accordingly with the uh, education, if you will, that we had provided. The class found these, these uh, practical exercises extremely helpful, horribly entertaining, and it was probably their favorite portion of the class. At the, the very first class that we did, we knew that we wanted to form an alumni association, but uh, didn't mention that until we were well into the class because we didn't know how well this was going to be received. I'm proud to say that uh, the Citizen Police Academy and my police department now that I retired from is in its 28th year Great. and growing. And the uh, the public that have uh, has attended these classes continue to uh, uh, receive training and help the police department with their volunteers, uh, volunteerism in their alumni association. The alumni association captures probably, I would, uh, I don't have any uh, statistics in front of me, uh, and, and this is completely uh, 
off the cuff, but I would estimate that probably 12 to 20% of the class attendees go on to become alumni members for at least a short number of years, if not continually. The uh, One of the, the alumni members was class president of our first class, and she is still an alumni member and very active in the organization. We taught why we, how we collect evidence, why we uh, approach a person in uh, some manner that makes people perhaps think that we're being rude or being aggressive, passively aggressive. But we also did, we taught things about uh, why we did that. We taught officer safety and we taught uh, traffic stop safety and just uh, interpersonal relationships with the uh, public at large. Another fun thing that the uh, class liked to do is we held a mock trial. And one of the judges in the 16th Judicial District here oversaw, sat on the bench for that trial every time that we did it. And he would bring back to us different cases. We would have something in mind. He'd say, no, 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 I got a better idea. Guys, let's do this case because this is what happened in this. And, and so even the uh, the judicial branch got involved in this thing. And, and it's been quite successful. And that's just one facet of the concept of community policing. Um, the other, of course, is uh, putting officers into the community as a member of the community rather than an outside influence that's there only to enforce law. We, of course, we enforce the laws, but we do a, those, a lot of those laws with the, not so much as a, a punitive effort, but as a, uh, an effort to improve conditions within that neighborhood. One of the things that uh, we, we've discovered that we could do was if we could isolate a, a person or a house that is, or an apartment that is uh, problematic, we can address that through the eviction processes. And we taught landlord training, landlord-tenant rights and responsibilities. And it's an overall education thing that I think that, that is uh, the main goal of community policing. And I may have the dates wrong, and maybe Derek can uh, correct me if I'm, if I'm off on this, but I believe it was 1829, Sir Robert Peel founded the uh, London Metropolitan Police Department. And one of his tenets was that uh, the police are the community and the community are the police. But the police are only members of that community that are paid to give full-time attention to the duties of, that are incumbent upon every citizen in the community. And that's, that's a process, that's a mindset that we tried to uh, uh, instill in, in the people that uh, we work with in the neighborhoods. I, um, I'm just going to jump in there quickly um, on that premise. I don't know the date that uh, Robert Peel started, but um, that's certainly the history. One of the things that I like to talk to junior officers about when they graduate and uh, they become partners with me is I ask them, what do you think makes a good police officer? And they go through all these things about policing, blah, blah, blah. And I say, no, being a better person, just making judgments that the average person would make and then putting a policing frame around it is what makes a good police officer. I think that's awesome. If the idea could, as a layperson, if the idea could get out there more that we're in this together, I think, I mean, I'm just paraphrasing what Robert Peel said here, is I, I think if the message could get out to the communities that, hey, we're in this together. I'm the same as you. I'm just, a, my, my, I'm just full-time paid to, to do your role which you've got to keep your eyes open as, as well. That's an awesome point. How do you get that message out to people, though? That's really, really, uh, I think, what the, what the big question is. And 
my uh, the other question I had, Sergeant McQuinley, was what kind of people were you getting in to the community policing seminars? Because is it preaching to the already converted? Because, you know, really the problem seems to be, you know, if you've got 50% of the population that don't trust police, those are the people we got, that we have to start trying to reach, I think. I'm not sure I understand the question. Is Are you asking about the people that we uh, recruit into policing? No, no, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm, to... if I'm not making myself clear. The, the question I'm making, is, the question I'm asking is, when you did the community policing seminars, the attendees, were they people that were already, oh, I, I don't want to say pro-police, but at least not anti-police? Or what was the mixture of them? Because ideally we want to be you... reaching out to the 50% that really think the police are out to get them, to use a better term. Yeah, you would be surprised that there there was a uh, a, a good cross section of pro and anti. Oh, great! That uh, practically all of the uh, the uh, community meetings that I attended, okay. uh, and uh, the uh, concept of of trying to get people involved in their own community uh, and realize that the police officers could not be there, although we are on duty seven twenty four three sixty five. We can't be there every moment in your neighborhood when we're talking about a community of over 200,000 people. Mm -hmm. the, just the geographic responsibilities are, are just too widespread to be able to uh, be on the corner the next time somebody runs the stop sign and it irritates you or squeals their tires, uh, skid tires on pavement, whatever. But, but we would go into the communities and try to find out from the community, what is your major concern? At one point in time, I went to an, uh, a, a, a meeting, and the uh, uh, we had been experiencing a, a, a severe rash of gang homicides. And I referred to those during the introductory portion of, of my, of my uh, presentation before we turned it over to uh, the public for questions and answers. And I said something to the effect that with 22 gang homicides this past X number of months or whatever, this week's, then it, we must figure some way to approach and deter the young men and women from falling into the trap of gangland, gang activities, and, and gang memberships. This results in these 20-odd murders that uh, has happened over the past few weeks. And one of the attendees said, let's see, there's uh, 22 dead kids here. And we have a community of over 200,000 people. These are odds that I literally can live with. Mm. Wow. So how do you address that person? Yeah. Okay. You know, he's saying that. Uh, yeah, no, of uh, course, one's too many. My, yeah. fa me, uh, my family and I aren't victimized by this. Mm -hmm. We have a different problem. So, you know, that kind of put me in my place. You know, I'm trying to uh, get across some horrid statistics. And he's saying, yeah, okay, that's all right. But that's mm -hmm. not happening at the corner of walk and don't walk where I lived. Mm -hmm. You know, it's my big problem is the prostitutes trolling the streets. Mm. Oh, okay. Well, then that's, if that is your major problem, then. Let's get together and see how we can address this issue. With that, we're going to have to hear some quick words from our sponsors. Looking for a new coffee machine for your home or workplace? Look no further than Fine Choice Coffee Solutions, your experts in all things coffee. Why not come in for a chat and a special coffee tasting? You'll find us at 264 Gilbert Street in the city. Mention Radio Italia Uno and you will receive a free 250 gram bag of freshly roasted coffee beans. 
You can also shop online at www.fccoffee.com.au where you'll find our large range of premium roasted coffee beans, coffee machines, accessories, hot chocolates, teas and lots, lots more. I'm Danielle from Fine Choice Coffee Solutions, your one-stop shop for all things caffeine. I'm Anna Faruja of Chapel Funerals. My role as a funeral director is to guide you through the emotional process of saying goodbye to someone you love. I'm here to help you make all the necessary arrangements so that you and your family may have peace of mind and time to remember and celebrate the life of the person you've lost. When the time comes, I'm here for you. So please call me, Anna Faruja, at Chapel Funerals on 81825100. Hi, this is David Heath, and I'm excited to be bringing my program Soundtrack of Your Life to Radio Italia Uno. Join me Friday nights at 7 for interesting guests, some great music, and plenty of fun. It's the best way to kick off the weekend. Soundtrack of Your Life, Friday nights from 7 until 9 on Radio Italia Uno, 87.6 FM. Ti piace la musica? Hai voglia di metterti in gioco? Entusiasmo e personalità non ti mancano? Radio Italia 1 sta cercando te. Chiama l'82 123177 e anche tu avrai la possibilità di entrare a far parte del nostro team. Radio Italia 1, diamo voce alla tua voce. Radio Italia 1 You're listening to Change the World with Matt McQuinley on Radio Italia Uno, 87.6 FM. Hello and welcome back. We're here with Derek McManus, 42-year veteran of the Elite Star Group in the South Australian Police Department and retired Sergeant Marshall McQuinley, 26-year veteran of the Aurora Police Department, suburb of Chicago, Illinois joining us via webcast. We're going to pick up where we left off with Sergeant McQuinley, just the last couple points on the community policing program that was put together. If you could take it away there. One of the things that I wanted to include here was the fact that we created citizen patrols. The uh, citizens would go out in their own neighborhoods, either on foot, weather permitting usually, or in their vehicles and patrol their own neighborhoods. We would have a police officer, at least one, often two, in separate vehicles in the immediate vicinity, patrolling in the same neighborhood with them and have them have uh, direct radio contact with, with the citizen patrols. Citizen patrols were uh, told that they should not approach anyone that they thought was acting in an untoward manner, that they contact the police liaison immediately and let that person uh, handle deal with the situation. You might think that sounded like and we were creating a vigilante force, but it, we carefully weaned and uh, screened people that were going to be doing this. And of all the uh, patrols that we did over uh, probably eight different neighborhoods, I, I can only recall one young man that we had to ask to leave. And he was a, for lack of a better term, a wannabe. And uh, he showed up to one of his patrols assignments where Wearing a, uh, a vest, a, a armored, bulletproof vest, armored vest, and equipped with a nightstick, 
and a uh, long flashlight. And we said, Barry, you're just going to have to leave. You, this is not the kind of activity we want to take place in this. And I'm sorry, but you, you will not be permitted to attend and participate. And he huffed off and left, and we never saw him again. But all the uh, people that did volunteer and do those kind of things, that was the only really negative encounter that we ever had. Okay. All right. Well, that's some fabulous insights. Derek, can you tell us a little bit about the difference between the Australian approach to community policing and approach that Sergeant McQuinley just discussed? Yes. Uh, thank you. Sensational insight into the, uh, the approach that they've got in the U.S. We haven't gone that far here in um, Australia. What we have is neighbourhood policing where we call it neighbourhood watch. And essentially this is people getting together discussing local issues with a police officer who is allocated to their particular suburb or community area. They'll have regular meetings once a month and then we allocate safe houses where the public are able to identify these houses because of things on the letterbox or signification on the letterbox where the public can come and have a a chat to a neighbourhood watch officer. Now this is not a police officer, this is an officer they call it an officer, um, just a member of the public who has taken up a position as a neighbourhood watch officer. And they are more aware of what's going on. They are aware of the stats. But the push of our neighbourhood watch is just to be more aware of what's happening in the area. When the uh, when your next door neighbour or people in the street are going on holidays, they will let you know so that you can watch their house, you can take in their uh, mail, you can take out their rubbish and make it look as if there's people home. You are engaging with other people in the community because what we're finding with communities at the moment is everybody's not engaged the way they were 20, 30 years ago. Uh, 20, 30 years ago, we would all go to each other's house. We'd have drinks, we'd have barbecues. Everybody's becoming very isolated and pillared these days. And so this is a a way to try and get people to re-engage with each other and start looking after each other. Uh, and that's the way that we've gone with our community policing. Uh, one of the other things that I'll take up from uh, Sergeant McQuinley, uh, from Marshall, uh, is uh, every now and then we bring in people into the police academy and we put them through an exposure to our training. Now, this is not a organised thing that we do on a regular basis, but just occasionally we will bring people in, we'll put them through our, some of the training that we do. And the most fascinating one is when we put them into the shoot-no-shoot no shoot video mm. scenarios. And I don't know exactly what the statistics are, and so I'm, I'm taking this off the top of the head, but at least 65% of the time, the member of the public will shoot early. They will make that call that this is too dangerous, I need to shoot early. Mm. Probably another 10 or 15% that just refuse to shoot at all. Mm. They can't make that decision, and that's, that's quite acceptable. But there's only a very small percentage who would naturally go to what we train our police officers to. Now, this is... Absolutely normal. If you've never been thrown into a situation before and you get threatened by something. So this is a a natural thing that we see with the public. If you've never been thrown into a situation where you had to make a decision to shoot or not, no shoot before, you will panic and you'll make that decision early because you feel threatened. But this is why we have our police training and it's so stringent to make sure that we are able to make logical, informed decisions, even in this overwhelming situation where somebody's threatening you. That's awesome. (laughs) I don't know what else to say other than that's awesome. (laughs) To put the shoe on the other foot, because I've always thought that's crazy that you you just can't, you know, judge. Yeah, I I don't even know how 
Obviously, police need to be held accountable if they're doing something wrong, just like everybody else. Absolutely. But uh, when they say by a jury of your peers, uh, I don't even know how you find a jury of your peers in that kind of situation when when a cop is going on trial for using force that maybe they, that they're it's felt they shouldn't have. Because unless you've been in that situation, how is somebody an actual peer? You know, and and, and I think that's great to, for that kind of awareness. I mean, I wish. I, 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 is there anything like that in America, to your knowledge? I mean, that's that would just be wonderful. I mean, I think every legislator should have that as mandatory, as mandatory <laughs> in my opinion. Yeah, I, I just can't say how great that is. Is there anything like that in the United States, to your knowledge, Marshall? Funny you should mention that because in that first Citizens Police Academy class, we did not do shoot, don't shoot. We were very concerned that uh, we didn't want them having a, a, a firearm uh, and the, the officer pushed for that, but uh, administration would never go for it. Yeah, no, and, uh, and I wouldn't want that. different administrations. Yeah, I wouldn't want that to become a <laughs> but, regular uh, thing. Uh, Matt mentioned... Uh, well, my uh, understanding is this is just a training exercise. Like, it's like laser. You guys are using, you guys are using what, paint guns? Or what are you doing? You're using... Um, yeah, but the, the shoot-no-shoot scenarios are generally a video. Okay, uh, yeah, a laser. A, yeah, yeah, that's right. That type of thing. The only people who do any live shooting are yeah. uh, Star Group, yeah. um, and we will do you know, live rounds into yeah. targets so that we are trained to just that higher level and a higher level of awareness. Mm. But everybody else is doing it with essentially laser or paintball. Right, right. so if you can make the argument that by your own standards, here's how you did yep. with a laser when you know this is a video game. Yep, absolutely. Now, how, now let's however, say, how, now how however, do you think it would happen if it was for real? You know, with yeah. a real weapon, yeah. which is going to be even. You know, you're going to be having infinitely more pressure. Absolutely. You know, but but this is the standard that we expect our police to be trained to. Yeah, no, and, and, and I'm very happy to and, rise to that standard. And that's the message that I think the public needs to hear. Yeah, sorry to interrupt, yeah. but I mean, yeah, that's the the message the public needs to hear and understand. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, when you get into those scenarios of uh, and it doesn't even have to be shoot, no shoot. It can be arrest, not arrest. Right. It can be take action to stop someone from speeding. You know, what's that fine line? Is three kilometres over the speed limit at the time that you pull somebody over? Do you wait until they're 10 kilometres over the speed limit? Do you wait until they're, you know, what is, what is that limit? And it's making those rational decisions under pressure that we expect our police officers to be able to make those decisions as a result of the training we go through. When you were discussing the, the this neighborhood watch officer house, uh, there's never there's not any problems with you know one of the challenges in the United States is, from my understanding, is people don't want to cooperate with the police because they're afraid of reprisals from, with lack of a better term, the bad guys. Yep. So, do you have a lot of problem with people? I mean, because the bad guys are going to know where the safe houses are as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, safe house is just a, a, a safe place to come and have a discussion. In South Australia, we enjoy great popularity with our public, mm -hmm. and I, I think our approval rating is one of the top 3% in the world in South Australia. So, mm -hmm. we're very, very fortunate there. The people who are identified as neighbourhood watch officers or uh, role players no they're not targeted by um, any bad guys mm. it's a it's a low level of community involvement mm -hmm. but high interaction between neighbors and that's that's what it's driving okay. so uh, generally speaking no there's no problems for those people who do they are, do anything like that in Queensland where police aren't as popular they've got similar operations up there I can't 
speak to exactly what they are, mm-hmm. but they've certainly tried to engage in the same way, mm-hmm. you know, in exactly the same way as your your dad is in America. We try to get the public involved to assist us because it is the responsibility of everybody to uphold the law. We just get paid 24-7 to do it. Mm. Well, in fact, we get paid eight hours to do it 24-7. Mm-hmm. Mm. Which, is, which is ideal. Yeah, mm. yeah. Getting the public involved and helping them to understand some of the difficulties we have really makes it, you know, when you do start getting judged by your peers for your performance and it, it doesn't have to be in court. Well, and as I'm sure this podcast is going to go to, how are we judged by the public just in everyday actions? Mm. It, it's better for people to understand the difficulties behind it. We're going to have to pick this up in the next session, but just throwing it out there, I think a lot of times police are boxed into corners. For example, back in in the late 90s when Rodney King, that whole Rodney King thing happened, departments were forced to take away a lot of I, I think there needs to be transitions between use of force, you know, obviously. Mm. Like they took away nightsticks, they took away saps, they took away the pepper spray, they took away tasers, they took all these things away. So it was just, a, you know, a guy and his gun or a lady and their gun. Mm. And, you know, and, and, if, and I'm, I'm sorry if this sounds offensive, but if it's a 45, 50-year-old cop, you know, who isn't in the same physical condition he was in when he was 25. And there's somebody that just got out of prison and spent the time lifting weights, you know, and learning disarming techniques and finishing off his criminal education. And they have to arrest this person. I mean, where are they going to be? I mean, they have no choice but to, I mean, it's a lot more likely they're going to be in, they're going to have to use their weapon. Uh, so I, I know I, the scenario you're trying I, to paint I, here. Yeah, but what, I, what I'm trying to say is I think that we need to, that the public is forcing cops to be black or white, and there's lots of transitional steps in the middle, and there's lots of, you know, oh, de-escalate it. Oh, of course you should de-escalate it. Yep, of yep. course. I mean, nobody, I mean, in their right mind wants to get into a fight or wants to pull their weapon, okay? Right, right. But there needs to be, tra- there, there need to be more tools in the kit that I think that that, and the public often gives police to yeah. I don't to know solve the problem. The the description you gave there of taking away uh, the non lethal uh, options for police. I haven't seen that in Australia. We are bringing in as many non lethal options as possible. That's great. The we used to have uh, tear gas. Now it's gone to oleo resin capsicum, which is pepper spray. Mm-hmm. We are given the tasers and and all those things, uh, and we are as many non-lethal options as we can. Mm-hmm. But negotiation is the, by far the greatest tool we'll ever have. I think we're going we're gonna to pick that. That's an awesome point. We're going to pick that up in the next session after some words from our sponsors. Yo. Ciao. Armando Paradiso from Unique Stone. Delivering quality stone tops to South Australia for over 20 years. Granite. Marble, Caesar Stone, Unique Stone, Granito, Marmo, Caesar Stone, Unique Stone. Thinking stone bench tops to your kitchen, bathroom, or furniture? Unique Stone at Jacobson Crescent, Holden Hill. Call us now, 8266-2280. Unique Stone, we won't be beaten. Come on, che stai facendo? Yo, chiama adesso.
Lo sapevi che l'82% delle persone richiama più facilmente il nome di un'azienda vedendolo scritto su carta che in una pubblicità sui social media? Continua a valorizzare i metodi più tradizionali, toccare e tenere nelle proprie mani biglietti da visita, calendari promozionali, cataloghi. Maria Studio Printing è il tuo partner creativo di stampa e di marketing ideale. Si occupano di graphic design, sviluppo web, gestione di stampa, routing CNC e 3D carving, fotografia commerciale e riprese, offrendo consegne nello stesso giorno o entro tre giorni lavorativi. Maria Studio Printing può portare alla luce i tuoi progetti e crescere la tua impresa è facile. Per saperne di più, chiama l'8352-1268. Join me, Ron Fiedler and Karen Fiedler each Saturday morning from 9 to 10am for Talking Real Estate. Your guide to real estate in Adelaide and South Australia. We'll bring you the latest local real estate news, interviews, tips and advice from property experts. Plus, report on the Italian property market and let you know about the week's open homes and upcoming auctions. And don't forget, I'll be bringing you my open home of the week. On Radio Italia Uno, 87.6 FM, Talking Real Estate, every Saturday morning from 9 till 10am. Be in the know with Adelaide's local real estate show. Radio Italia Uno, sito internet www.italiauno.com.au Seguici anche sulla nostra pagina Facebook e Instagram. Radio Italia 1 You're listening to Change the World with Matt McQuinley on Radio Italia Uno 87.6 FM Hello and welcome back to Change the World with Matt McQuinley. Derek made an awesome point right at the end of the last session on how one of his most important tools in his kit, it's not hung on his uh, utility belt, but he carries it with him always his ability to negotiate and de-escalate situations. I remember, Dad, when, when uh, you were a cop, you told me once that your job was that of a salesman. Your job was to talk yeah. people out of being stupid so you don't have to take them to jail and fill out a lot of paperwork. So uh, <laughs> that, that, I don't know if you want that out there in the public, but that's what you told me one time. Oh, that's that's okay? quite all right. You know, all right. That, that's, so uh, that a, a, a basic premise that I operated by. If I can uh, talk somebody down, then uh, it's better for all concerned. Yeah, which is obviously makes sense. So Derek, if you could talk a little bit about that, I think that would be great because that's, and and also that's something the public needs to understand. That's what 99.9% of cops are trying to do. They're trying to de-escalate the situation. They don't want to get hurt either. They want to go home at the end of their shift. No, that's right. They, They don't want to get in a situation where they, they could potentially get hurt, and they don't, wanna, they don't wake up in the morning hoping they can shoot somebody either. No, that's right. So, oh. I, I, and, and I was just reading, sorry, I'm going on a rant here for a second, but I, I was just reading how police have now taken the top spot of all occupations out there for suicide. So they're taking this stuff home with them, There and you don't kill yourself if you're somebody that wants to go out and hurt other people. That's somebody that's wanting to do the right thing and is struggling. Yeah, absolutely. the The suicides are a very, very deep conversation. There's a lot of reasons behind those, and and I would probably want to do a little bit more research myself before I talk about the actual reasons uh, for it. But no, we don't go out and uh, want to take action of people against people we don't want to arrest people 
for doing the wrong thing. We would rather talk them into doing the right thing. And so education, negotiation uh, is certainly one of the greatest tools that we have uh, in our kit bag. And I've got to say that I didn't transfer, how do I, I've got to say that I didn't uh, learn negotiation as well as I do it now until we started having female police officers come into the job. When I first graduated, it was all men and we would be two up men and if we got into an argument with a bloke, it was just easy to go, listen, we don't want to have this argument, we're going to arrest you, we're going to take you to jail uh, and that's how we operated. And when I finally got a female partner, which I really enjoyed having, uh, a female partner, enjoyed doing that side of the uh, the job as well, um, and it was like, are we going to do an argument with a guy and I'm going, okay, well, let's go hands on, or oh, hang on, I've got a female partner, maybe we can't. And this girl was talking to him, and, and he wasn't getting all that violent, which I had anticipated, and the, she kept on talking to him, and he calmed down. And I've gone, how did she do that? And I actually started listening to the conversations they were having, and it became part of my repertoire then as well, to engage in the same conversations that they were able to have and be able to talk our way out of situations rather than having to arrest someone or handcuff them or, you know, take other action and that became an even better tool so the gender balance that we now have in the police department certainly helps to interact with the public as well fantastic anything you'd like to add to that sergeant mcquinley well the only thing that i would want to add about the entire concept is that having the community realize that bad guys don't do what bad guys do when other people are watching and that goes right to the heart of neighborhood watch and neighborhood-oriented policing and policing problem-solving, all of those issues. Bad guys don't do what bad guys do if other people are watching. Mm. I want to talk, that's a great point. I want to talk a little bit about a problem that seems to be occurring in the U.S. I I have several friends in law enforcement, and it seems like, they talk about the Ferguson effect. You've heard of that, right? Where police are less likely to be more active in policing because they're afraid of ramifications that might come back on them. Do you feel that that's happening here in in Australia at all, Derek? Are you hearing anything about that? Or are you? What do you? No. the The greatest tool that the public have at the moment is the mobile phone, and people say, "Oh, police are changing their behaviours because everybody's filming them now." No, that's incorrect. We are still doing exactly what we did before. We are wearing body-worn cameras these days so that we can capture that as well. The portrayal of what happens in an incident uh, being recovered uh, or being reviewed in video is a very powerful tool for us. The uh, biggest challenge we have is that some people will take a video on their mobile phone and they will edit out what the offender was doing and then just put in the police action. This is what the police did, mm. but they don't show the antecedent mm. action of the offender, and and then the public get hot on that. Now, we've got to balance this too with police are not always doing the right thing. Sometimes we make mistakes, mm. and we've got to be vulnerable enough to put our hand in the air and say, yes, sometimes we do, but it's a minority. Mm. As we were discussing before, out of all the incidents that happen, the times that we make a mistake is a minority, but we need to be bold enough to go, okay, we made a mistake in that and be held accountable to the public for it. And that's got to be accepted by the public as well rather than jumping on and going, you made a mistake, we are going to crush you. It's If you 
good enough to make a mistake and, and admit it, okay, let's work through it and where's our resolution and how do we learn from it. Do you see a, a lot of cops in the, U, uh, in the United States backing away from stuff, though, because they're afraid of prosecution, losing pensions, getting put on report? I don't, I don't remember what – I just know what you call it in the service. I don't know what you call it in, in the police department, but you, you know what I mean by getting put on report. Yeah, being um, investigated right. by the internal investigations. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what do you see in, that, in those situations? Do you see anything like that? Well, at, initially, uh, when people started uh, – uh, suing police officers back in the probably what was it the late eighties and uh, early nineties, police officers and, and their uh, employers getting sued for sometimes uh, uh, valid reasons and sometimes for uh, absurd reasons. And a lot of the officers t- did tend to back away a little bit, but eventually that pendulum swung back to professional responsibility. The officers that said, well, I'm not going to handle that issue because uh, I'm not going to get sued. Those officers were soon weeded out and hopefully did not find employment elsewhere. And the advent of uh, body cams, body cameras here in the U.S., uh, initially police officers said, "Uh, this is just another way for them to try to catch us, catch me doing something that I shouldn't be doing. Well, first off, why were you doing something that you shouldn't have been doing? <laughs> and secondly, do you realize, as Derek said, here is a full-blown uh, uh, copy of uh, the incident rather than something that's been edited by someone with ulterior motives. Hmm. So eventually, most police officers came to believe that the body cams were a pretty good idea after all. Hmm. Absolutely. I'm just going to jump in quickly. The incident where I was shot, and now we're going back 27 years ago now, that person was a person who would continually make complaints to police investigations branch to try and intimidate police so that every time they came to him, they thought, oh, well, I can't do anything because he's going to complain and I'm going to get into trouble. And what we did was we get, we said, okay, we understand what he's doing, so let us now put in something in place to mitigate any power that he has. And so we actually went to arrest him on the time that I was shot and we took video camera with us so that we could capture the whole incident so that everybody could see exactly what was going on. So we want to be accountable. We mm. want to show what's going on. And as your dad uh, said, you know, we want to do the right thing. And if somebody's not doing the right thing, well, we want to capture that as well. Mm. You know, If we can find a police officer who is doing the wrong thing, we don't want that police officer in our ranks. We want to weed them out. And, and so, yeah, we're generally speaking, most police are uh, very happy to be have their behaviours and their uh, actions analysed and, and judged. Makes sense. And it's something the public needs to understand is that is that exact point, that police want to be transparent about what they're doing. That's, that's and obviously they term. don't want to be transparent unless... They're doing. They believe they're doing things the right way. So uh, I, I think that that takes a lot of wind out of the anti-police sales per se. Yeah, yeah. So and and I'm just going to jump in mm-hmm. uh, and be devil's advocate on behalf of the public and reiterate: there are some police officers who do the wrong thing. Let's not get away from that. We're not all perfect, and I have made mistakes in my career. I have arrested people too early occasionally. And I just learn from those and try and be a better police officer next time. Mm. Okay, I want to talk about uh, a little bit about minority minorities in policing. In the United States, 
for the most part, the trend has been towards diversifying police departments. For example, in New York City, 53% of police are of minority birth, 47% are Caucasian. And that's similar around the country. I think that they made a move similar here in Australia to destroy this whole perception that the police are there to uphold the status quo rather than protect the public. I'd like you guys' feedback on that. Derek, would you like to go first? We are targeting as much as possible our marketing to culturally and linguistically diverse people to draw them in and bring them into our ranks. Not just so that uh, we look the part, but there's a lot of learning that we can do from people in how to interact with the different communities. And the more that we've got them involved with us and representing the police, the more chance we have of having good outcomes from those interactions with those different communities. Well, Sergeant McQuinley, what's your feedback on that topic? Which we'll dig into deeper on the next session, but... The problems with bringing the police departments forward into uh, realistic community relations is a a huge problem here in the U.S. We are used to having uh, this 25-year-old white kid, middle class, graduating the academy, going through the -the on-the-job training, and then being turned loose into a neighborhood, usually, of minority persons. And then he, this 25-year-old superstar, is now going to go about telling these uh, 40-something people uh, how to go about living their lives. And this man, this man that he's being, that's being talked to is thinking, kid, go home, move out of your parents' basement, and then get a real life, and then you can talk to me about this. And we finally realize that this is what's going on. So uh, trying to attract uh, more or uh, persons from the community to share, share that balance of uh, uh, population to the uh, law enforcement uh, 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 genre uh, has been an ongoing problem and it's being addressed hopefully you know I, I don't have any direct knowledge of it now but other than uh, the things that I hear from my friends but it seems to me that they're picking up on it. It's being improved upon. And there's certainly a lot more uh, sensitivity to uh, uh, the plights of uh, those that would be less fortunate than this young officer. Mm. I will just jump in quickly there. Uh, I just uh, remembered that we actually have an Aboriginal program where we have community police officers who are Aboriginal police officers, and they police their own communities. Mm. We let them go in and they... They have a blend of Aboriginal policing and Australian legislative policing, and that's a very effective way of doing it uh, because they have a different way of interacting with their own community. Their own community are are quite comfortable, more comfortable interacting with people of their own culture who are given authority to police in the way that uh, we would like them to. And so that program has been very, very successful, and it's broken down some of the barriers between general policing and those communities very effective and, and that's what we're trying to do with all communities mm. I, I was actually speaking to that would be similar to that would be uh, on uh, Native American reservation lands uh, mm. and and the Native American policing uh, only the uh, FBI Federal Bureau of Investigation has uh, authority to go on to an Indian reservation and do policing 
that has been reserved, pardon the expression, for the Native American himself. Yep. Yep. Well, we're going to have to dig into that point uh, deeper on the next session. We're going to take a quick break and hear some words from our sponsors. At Elders Insurance Adelaide East, our mission is to provide outstanding service and superior coverage to each and every one of our clients. With over 30 years of experience, we treat every client with mutual respect and understanding. We'll listen carefully to your specific needs and requirements in order to develop insurance solutions with a level of service and coverage you can't find anywhere else. Elders Insurance Adelaide East is a family-owned and run business with a Italian tradition which is built on honesty, integrity and trust. Make an appointment today and go and see Tony and the team at Elders Insurance Adelaide East, 54 to 56 Kensington Road, Rose Park or telephone 8364 9477. We're an authorised representative of Elders Insurance, underwriting agency, proprietary limited, Elders Insurance, underwritten by QBE Insurance, Australia Limited. Did you know that Podcast City can record your podcast right here in the studios of Radio Italia Uno on our professional recording equipment? Podcast City can also come to your location with our mobile studio. We can record just your audio or work with you to plan, record, edit, and distribute your podcast to your audience. If you would like to find out more and receive a free podcast startup checklist or book a time to record your podcast, call Radio Italia Uno on 8212317 or go to podcastcity.com.au. Podcast City, podcasting the easy way. Hello, I'm Peter Salerno. Please join me on Happy Business Radio every Monday, 2 to 3 p.m. on Radio Italia Uno. We have lots of fun with very interesting guests. We talk about how to start, build and increase your business. Happy Business Radio on Radio Italia Uno, 87.6 FM. Vuoi promuovere la tua attività? Vuoi aumentare il tuo volume di affari? Non sai a chi rivolgerti? Chiama Radio Italia 1. Il nostro staff commerciale è a disposizione per ogni informazione o preventivo personalizzato. Chiama all'82 123177. Radio Italia 1. E anche tu sarai un numero 1. Radio Italia 1. You're listening to Change the World with Matt McQuinley on Radio Italia Uno, 87.6 FM. Hello and welcome back to Change the World with Matt McQuinley. Before we dive in, Radio Italia Uno with the members of the board, the staff and the volunteers would like to thank Vito and Ross for their generous donation of a custom-made table for our studio. You can stop by and see the table at our radio station to see their quality work or you could visit them at A-Class Kitchen, 2 Hawker Road, Burton, South Australia. I want to thank uh, Sergeant McQuinley and Derek McManus today for being here in our studio and on our conference call on our discussion on policing. One other quick thing I'd like to bring up here in the little bit of time we have left is we were talking about trying to make, the police departments are trying to make the department reflect the ethnic breakdown of the community. And I wonder how that can be done. It's a challenge. I would think it's a real challenge in recruiting, for example, African-Americans 
when such a large percentage of African-American feel that the police are not necessarily on their side. Do you have any quick insights into that? We'll probably have to dive into that more in our next next session, but what do you think, Sergeant? Well, I, wish I, I wish I did have some good answers for that. Uh, not to be flippant, but uh, if I did have answers for it, I would probably be talking to Congress and not to you. Mm. But it, it is, it's, it's, it's extremely difficult challenge when the uh, sometimes deserved reputation takes place. Brother officers and um, sister officers have acted in such a manner as to uh, further that opinion and to try to get that back. It's a, uh, once you've made that kind of a mistake, that kind of a, a statement or act activity or whatever, it's hard to walk that thing back. And the members of any community, any ethnic community will see that and say, well, he doesn't really care about me. She doesn't have any idea of what I'm going through. And it's a difficult challenge to uh, bring about change in people's attitudes when their uh, experiences reflect their own prejudices. Well, I think the first thing, and again, I don't have all the answers. I think one of the first things is, in my opinion, as a layman, is getting people to understand policing is done by people. Therefore, mistakes are made and how good it's actually being done. We're going to leave it there for today. And as always, I will leave you with a short motivational message. Today, we're going to talk about two thieves. And you hate the guy that steals your car. You hate the guy that steals your wallet. So we're going to talk a little bit about those fellas today. So try not to get too upset. First thief we're going to talk about is a guy named Arthur Barry. Arthur Barry was a jewel thief, and he was a good one. Uh, Arthur Berry lived during the time of the Rockefellers, the Carnegies, the Vanderbilts, the super, super, uber, uber wealthy before income tax. Some of you might say today they don't pay income tax, but back then there was no income tax. So they didn't even have to spend the money on the accountants to get out of stuff. This guy only sold, stole from the super, super elite. And it got to be a status symbol to be robbed by Arthur Berry. The Vanderbilts would go to, the, go to their dinner parties with the Carnegies and say, Were you robbed by Arthur Berry? And if the answer was no, you hadn't made it on who's who's in society. So this guy was so good. He used to call the police ahead of time. He used to send or send a letter to the police ahead of time saying, I'm robbing such and such jewel, such and such day. Try to catch me. And the cops could never catch him. Finally, as a lot of great men, he was brought down by a jealous girlfriend. Don't ever mess with the ladies, guys. Important key to this story. And she turned him in. They caught him in the act. He was gut shot in the act of stealing some jewelry. He's on his back. He's got glass in his eyes as he was trying to climb out a window at the time. And he makes this startling revelation. I don't think I'm going to do this anymore. <laughs> anyway, they shipped him off to prison. He did his time, served his debt to society, paid his debt to society. And he got out of jail. He retired to a small town on the east coast in the united states a seaside community he became a big wheel in the local politics they even made him the head of a local veterans administration because he was a veteran as they do finally the muckraking reporters tracked him down figured out who he was and they made his life a living you know what so they're camped outside his house they're and they're hassling him hassling finally he has to go outside and talk to him and, what after, and one of the reporters asked a question, 
that he answered in this way. They said, Mr. Barry, of all the people you robbed, the Carnegies, the Vanderbilts, the Rockefellers, the Morgans, who did you steal from the most? And without batting an eye, Arthur Barry said, myself. I've only been here a short amount of time, and I'm a big wheel in the local politics. I'm the head of this VA administ- uh, organization. I could have been a captain of industry. I could have been uh, a leader, and I could have been a senator. I could have been, could have been, could have been, could have been. But none of those things <clears throat> happened. Why? Because he was a thief. And who did he steal from the most? Himself. himself. Don't be a thief.